Welcome to the Writer's Block, Episode 8, Politics and Comics, brought to you by Gouda Cheese, the cheese that kind of tastes like bacon. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo Award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjax, and The Peacekeepers. The other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the left this time, is... David Avalone, uh, comic book writer and screenwriter also, uh... Betty Page and Elvira at Dynamite, uh, Drawing Blood with Kevin Eastman Studios, etc. 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 If you I believe you have something to plug, Ryland, before we get started. <laughs> well, before I uh, before I start plugging, uh, if you missed our last episode, the Ringo mm-hmm. Awards riot with uh, Matt Fraction and Stan Sakai and a gaggle of other fine creators, um, I strongly suggest you uh, back it on up and check that out. Um, but yes, uh, a few quick plugs before we kind of dive into the meat of this thing. Um, it is worth mentioning that, uh, my latest and greatest comic fit is called the peacekeepers. Uh, it is available right now as we speak on Kickstarter. Uh, the peacekeepers is a love letter to quirky crime dramas like Fargo and no country for old men, uh, to cases, and police dramas like true detective and the wire, uh, to Elmore Leonard novels and to comic masterpieces like criminal and 100 bullets. So if you love that stuff, you're not going to want to miss this one. Uh, the campaign ends tomorrow night. If you are listening to this on uh, on the premiere day, that's Thursday the 19th uh, at midnight. Um, so check that out right now. You can go to bit.ly backslash the peacekeepers. Uh, what are you selling today, Avalone? I think it's the last day for the, uh, the Nightmare Theater Anthology, which I'm a part of. And later today, we will be talking about, uh, with Emily Flake, the uh, Clinic Escort book done by uh, A is for, uh, which Emily is uh, the editor of and contributor to, and uh, definitely selling that to the people. But uh, let's get to our, our topic. Um, we, we shut down our little show for a couple of weeks, uh, knowing that the eyes of the world would be on the election. I know I was just refreshing the Pennsylvania vote count and not paying attention to really anything else in the world. But that got us thinking about the intersection of comics and politics, and in particular, the use of comics as a political tool to deliver political messages. And I honestly don't think we could have anyone better to discuss that than today's guests, Lalo Alcaraz and Emily Flake, who I will now bring in. There's Emily. Nice mask. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. (laughs) Incredible. That is is a good look. Yeah, I, I like the salt. Now that being the only one without any facial, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, the salt patch is incredible. It had, it had a nose, but we took it out because it looked like Super Mario. So, oh, wow. <laughs> that's of, incredible. Super homey, you know? Super Mario COVID. <laughs> uh, this, this is this is actually all new. I never have facial hair, and um, you know, I'm sitting at home. Uh, you know, in my own filth all the time, and you know, it kind of grows, <laughs> and then every once in a while, I like I blink, and two weeks has passed, and I have uh, uh, facial hair. So I knew I was going to be broadcasting today, and so I cleaned it up a little bit. But it's like I, I have a nice like William Riker going on right now. I kind of yeah. want to like, I kind of want like a little, you know, yeah, get, like, get, 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 like a Riker yeah, lean going on through catalog yeah. right now. Nice, nice. <laughs> yeah, I I uh, I only do podcasts so that I will shave. <laughs> That's literally, it's That's the only, idea. like, it's the only point in doing these is so that I can look like a human being every once in a while. Because I go from unshaven to old Prospector Joe really, really fast. And it's not a, <laughs> you know, my gold. It's not a great look for me. Uh, Emily, tell us a little bit. You're welcome. Uh, yeah. <laughs> tell us a little bit about yourself, Emily. Um, I'm a writer. I'm a cartoonist, primarily for The New Yorker. Um, I am the author of a couple books, uh, Mama Tried, which is uh, cartoons and essays about parenting, and um, uh, That Was Awkward, which is about awkward hugs, which came out last year and kind of immediately became totally obsolete. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's about that. I am uh, starting a humor writing residency for women in Pennsylvania. Um, That's exciting. And yeah. Where in Pennsylvania? Williamsport, pretty much right in the middle. I I do not know it. I have spent some time in Pennsylvania, and that's that's outside of. Uh, is that near Gettysburg? That seems like that would be middle-ish. 
You know, that's a really good question. My um, Pennsylvania geography is not awesome. I can tell it's you it's going to get better. It's very large. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know if you're a Little League guy, but it's the home of the World Series of Little League. Nice. Oh, wow. Nice. And Lalo, tell us a little I'm, bit about yourself. I'm here, I'm here trying to uh, stop the sun from blinding us here a second. <laughs> <laughs> Please I know the lighting is very lighting. Zoom lighting is a whole thing. It's not working. I'm, my 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 thing's about to collapse here. But, uh, but anyway, it's a nice dramatic. It's a nice dramatic slash yeah. across your shoulder. Dun, dun, dun. It's anyway. very uh, very <laughs> Star Trek '60s lighting there. Oh, well, <laughs> but yeah, tell us a little bit about uh, your thing. Sure, uh, I have many things uh, going on. I'm. Uh, Primarily uh, editorial cartoonist uh, for uh, Andrews McNeil Syndicate. Uh, and I, I do a daily comic strip, La Cucaracha. It's been going for about, only about 17 years. Uh, <laughs> it's dwindling down of uh, newspapers, but it's there, including the LA Times. Uh, and uh, um, I also work at Nickelodeon on a show called The Casa Grandes. Uh, I do uh, consulting work for Hollywood. I uh, my my biggest project was Coco, uh, where I got to uh, be a cultural consultant for that and do a voice, which is really cool. Nice, because uh, they send me checks. Uh, and then uh, so when I'm writing a couple of shows for a couple of companies, and uh, hopefully going to be selling them to bigger companies soon. That is always the plan. I remember La Cucaracha in the weekly. Yeah. Uh, was it was it weekly then or was it a daily that we were only seeing weekly in the in the in the weekly? <laughs> yeah, no. Uh it was uh yeah, LA Weekly, uh, LA and the, the US used to have a lot of great alternative weekly papers and I remember. Uh, you know, their shells uh or of themselves or they have gone. Uh but uh, yeah, in 1992 that was my first uh regularly published gig in uh, in LA Weekly. It was the glory days. I was there for a long time. I was I there along with uh, Matt Groening. I was going to say, you and Matt Groening. I think uh, I think he's the only one that was longer there than I was. Uh, maybe Linda Berry, but uh, Matt Groening was there the whole time uh, doing Life in Hell. Uh, and uh, I used, you know, and then, uh, yeah, uh, our my run ended. When I saw Matt Groening interviewed about, well, I'm going to end uh, life in hell because the LA Weekly just dropped it, and I said, "Oh crap! That means I'm <laughs> I'm out too." Because <laughs> you know, well, there's not going to be any comics, and and sure enough, that was that was correct. So it was it was you know. a good run. So uh, you know, to to kick off, at what point did you guys connect? comics to politics like in your evolution as an artist is it something that was always there from the beginning is it something that crept in over time i don't know that i would consider myself a political cartoonist per se i mean i think it, except in so far as the personal is political right. <laughs> um, and my work is is pretty personal um but I think even as a kid, you know, being aware of, of comics and being a huge comics fan, I always, you know, was aware of and interested in the um, political angle to them, even if it wasn't overtly political, like stuff that was more like social issues, et cetera, et cetera. So like, I think it's always been sort of a part of my understanding of, of comics and myself in that, in that galaxy. And Lalo? Uh, me, uh, I've always been, uh pissed off so <laughs> this is the only outlet i've ever had uh uh so uh yeah it, it's uh it started from um you know i grew up on the border in san diego uh in tijuana uh southern california so uh it uh, southernmost california uh and so uh i i grew up not seeing myself on tv but watching uh, dubbed over American shows in Spanish. Spanish, Spanish is my first language. And, uh, though I grew up on, you know, born on the U S side. And so that whole border kind of 
you know, um, dualism kind of screwed me up. Uh, and also, you know, seeing how mistreated my parents were, they're Mexican immigrants. Uh, so uh, it was an outlet to express myself, to kind of see myself, uh, see my friends, draw my friends. You know, we all drew our friends and our family when we were kids, and that's what I did. But to me, it was like uh, to make up for the lack of any images uh, for us. So when when there was a any kind of uh, cartoonist that was, uh, you know, Latino, which was like one that I saw, uh, Gus Ariola, who drew a comic strip called Gordo for over 40 years, uh, he, uh, that was like a revelation. Like, oh, I can do this, you know, and here I am. And did Gordo make you feel like it, that made you it feel like it was possible for you to do it? Um, yeah, you know, first it made me feel like, uh, even though the strip's about Mexicans uh, in, in a sleepy village in Mexico, I was like, I, I feel seen, you know? Uh, right. and, uh, you know, I didn't grow up with uh, roosters and pigs and stuff like that, like, like in the comic right. book. But I still felt seen, you know, and uh, so, uh, but yeah, it made me realize like, oh, you know, this is, I love, you know, I love reading the comics in the newspaper as a kid. Uh, and in, in Mexico and Latin America, you know, there's, you know, giant tradition of uh, comic books, uh, you know, and they're, they're more like, because, you know, we're so dramatic down there. They, they're like historietas. They're like little telenovelas in comic book form and like pulp comics, you know? Uh, right. So you, comics are, are everywhere uh, when uh, you're in Mexico. So uh, uh, it, it would just seem like, oh, just hit a light, like, oh, I can do this here, you know, and I can, I can draw about stuff here. Like, let me, let me do that. What was your inspiration, Emily? You mean in terms of like getting into comics in general? Um, in general and and politically. Um, the first things that I remember loving as a kid was uh, Edward Gorey and Gay and Wilson, um, which I think you know dovetailed nicely with the fact that like I was already like well on track to being like a weird kid, so <laughs> it definitely sort of like opened this possibility of of. Like, oh, there's some, there's some other like delightful, weird, gross stuff out there, um, and that really like laid the base for kind of my entire artistic and socio, <laughs> socio political life. Um, and also, I think um, loving Dan Wilson as much as I did when I was a kid put me into that headspace of, of gag cartooning, even though it took me like, you know until I was uh, much more of an adult to kind of start exploring that as a form. But it was definitely mm -hmm. one of the first things that I really sort of like fell in love with. Um, and then when I was, uh, you know, a teenager kind of like acquiring my own tastes, um, you know, I was a punk rock kid and I loved everything having to do with, you know, the music and fanzines and comics and that entire like visual galaxy. So that had a lot to do with like who I became as an artist as well. Did you ever did you ever do any art for the punk rock scene? Did you do like, you know, album covers, posters, any of that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't play an instrument, so I was pretty useless as right. far as the music goes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I had a fanzine um called Puddle Jumper Weather Stomper, which is I mean, I, I honestly couldn't tell you now what the hell that's supposed to mean. Um, but yeah, one of my favorite things to do was just like old school layout um with like a stolen copy key and just photocopying. I would get like type um, you know, like type sample books and just copy the pages right. at different sizes. So I would have different sizes. I'm 180 years old. I don't know if I've made that clear. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you, yeah, and yet you may be one of the younger people on this podcast, which is <laughs> quite, but yeah, it's so funny when you said stolen copy key, that is such a generationally specific. There's a whole generation of people older than us that have no idea what that would mean or what why yeah. would you would need that. And uh -huh. then there's people younger than us that also like, no, you just you hit the print button on your what the right. what's the big deal? <laughs> I remember at college, like that knowing the 
secret codes to the library copier to the administration built like we all kept <laughs> secret lists of those codes we were aware of when they were changed and it was such a big part of what you could accomplish <laughs> i worked in the library like <laughs> um, that helps yeah i just availed myself of whatever like library things i could um, so yeah, Mary Cheney Library unwittingly sponsored like a lot of um, of fanzines. Mm -hmm. And what was the first stuff you did, Lalo? What was the the first? Well, well since we're talking about co copy key, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, not the first stuff. I actually I can show you some of the first stuff I did. I was just taking a photo of it for doing a, a happy hour show tonight, and they asked me send uh, some old old drawings. That but here's some oh, like wow. little. Cholo drawings I did. Wait a minute, I can't figure out how to do this. This is, uh, why is nothing working? Okay, there's a no, little, I can see it. little fly, fly cholo. And, uh, nice. Uh, little, uh, little homie. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, um, oh, there's a whole bunch of other stuff, actually. I'm a, I'm a hoarder. I have all my stuff. Sure. Uh, I totally get that. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That monster spider. How old were you when you did those? I was probably 14 or 15, so not the first things I've ever drawn, but uh, I mean, I was drawing, entertaining my friends in the fourth grade, you know. And um, did you go to the weekly with a stack of cartoons, <laughs> or how did you get in there? No, you know what happened? Uh, LA burned down. It was uh, uh, the, uh, the LA riots happened, and uh, some some institutions in LA opened up and said, you know what, maybe we should listen to the community. And uh, an, uh, an editor friend of mine suggested to the editor of the LA Weekly that maybe they should uh, have a, run a comic by me. Uh, and so I had to, I did walk in with a stack of drawings and uh, only, uh, only a couple were rejected and we just we started right away in, in 1992. Um, and I actually have, uh, I'm telling you, I've got everything. I'm sorry you have to look <laughs> close up at my armpit, but I have. Uh, this is an old one from the LA Weekly. I did, I, I want to see. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah I have back, you know, when you used to ink on, like, paper? Um, but this is one of my <laughs> famous, uh, well-known pieces that I did um, that usually generated that kind of recognition that you, you want from, from the audience, you know, people are like, when did you meet my dad? You know, this is like exactly a, a picture of my dad. Um, but, um, yeah. And it was, uh, and it, was it was untapped territory. No one was doing that cartoon. Yeah, not yeah. really, not really. So, um, and, but where I kind of started and we get back to the copy key thing was, uh, when I went to grad school at, at Berkeley, for architecture, and that's where I met a, a guy, uh, and he and I started doing a zine called Pocho Magazine. And uh, we used to go to the copy stores, uh, one in particular in Berkeley, uh, right next to campus, uh, where Mexicanos worked, and they're all from Puebla, Mexico. And they, we would just give them a like a swag T-shirt or a couple copies of old a calendar or magazine. And they would just let us publish Pocho Magazine just <laughs> wild. So, I mean, they, after us, they installed keys. They're like, no. <laughs> it's actually, that is actually a trick I learned from, uh, apprenticed is probably the wrong word, but I worked for a semi-famous exploitation film director named Andy Sedaris. And he shot very rarely in Los Angeles. And one of the things he taught me is that any small town can be completely taken over with about five t-shirts. <laughs> He's like, you show up. He's like, he would make the t-shirts before we would write the script. Like, you get a title, he'd make t-shirts. And I'd say, why are we making t-shirts? He's like, when we go on location, I swear to God, three t-shirts and a picture with the leading lady will get a fire department to close down 20 city blocks for you anywhere outside of LA County. And I'm like, well, that's probably true. And that's, you know. I, 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 I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just imagining like Pueblo, Colorado. You know, uh, everybody walking around in hard ticket to Hawaii t-shirts or something that's, like that. <laughs> that's pretty much. A lot of law enforcement all around the Southwest have t-shirts from those movies. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, uh, I, Emily, how did you? 
I, I okay. once I was in El Paso and uh, I, I uh, at, a, at a hotel and I found an uh, unattended border patrol truck. So I put one of my cartoons on it. I wish I had it to show you, but it was Geronimo and he's saying like, show me your papers, right? He's got his Geronimo's got his rifle. And well, here, who comes out of the hotel, but like six linebacker size Chicano border patrol agents. They're like, sir, and I'm taking photos of this, you know, I jacked their truck, you know. <laughs> and they're like, sir, uh, what are you doing? And whatever, right? And they were at a conference, I guess, border patrol brutality conference or something. <laughs> and uh, so I was working on a show at Fox called Border Town. And I said, hey, do you guys, uh, do you guys know Seth MacFarlane? They're like, yeah, man. I go, here's some buttons from Seth MacFarlane. <laughs> so I didn't get nice. deported or beaten that day because of swag. Very helpful. <laughs> I feel like you could do a whole podcast around swag saved my life. <laughs> totally. Swag saved my life. I think that we will we will uh, we will keep that topic on standby because it's definitely <laughs> it's definitely a thing. It's like what. It's it's good to be reminded every once in a while how lucky we are and how magic this stuff seems to everybody who doesn't get to yeah. do it for a living. I did a I did a movie a few years ago, and we did something that I winced a little bit at. We we kickstarted it, and we people paid us to be extras in the movie. They wanted to be a part of it. They wanted to support the movie, and for. $200 or something, you'd be an extra in a movie. And I felt a little bad about it until a day came to shoot the scene. And those were the happiest people I have seen on a movie set in over 20 years, in over 30 years. They were thrilled. It was magic. It was exciting. And I was like, well, they got their money's worth. Uh, as, as exploitation goes, it's, you know, it's, it's a win-win. There, there are worse, there are worse <laughs> ways to do it, certainly. When one of my partners suggested, I was like, so wait, where people are paying us to work, that's like against every, but it's like, no, they're paying us to hang out for a day on a movie set and be excited. And the, the hard work we made them do was cross left to right, please. Great. Thank you. So it wasn't, wasn't too terrible, but funny stuff. Emily, how did you get started at New Yorker? What did you, how did you sail in there? Uh, so Man, it's such a boring prosaic story, but basically like, you know, any chump can walk in off the street and, you know, show their uh, portfolio and their ideas and stuff. So like uh, about 12 years ago, I was one of those chumps. Um, but basically I had a strip that ran in a bunch of alt weeklies too. And yeah, to get back to the alt weekly thing a little bit, I sure. also very much miss alt weeklies um, for so many reasons. Um, but I had a strip called Lulu 8-Ball, and um, I became friendly with Drew Jernovich, who's a cartoonist at The New Yorker, and he was like, hey, you know, if you ever want to bring in, you know, some stuff to show Bob, Bob being Bob Mankoff, the editor, of at the time, um, he was like, just let me know, and I'll make sure that I go in that day so you don't feel like you're, you know, alone there. So I started um, submitting every week, and after about I think eight or nine months, they finally bought something, and I was like, "This is it! This is amazing! I'm famous!" And I'm not famous, but you know, I I have since sold them more cartoons, so that's nice. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's an expression in the comic book industry that's comic book famous, where <laughs> you can walk down the street in complete safety. But in my case, there are easily a dozen people who think I'm awesome uh, and, uh, and, yeah. and think I'm famous and think I live in a mansion because I write comic books, which is hilarious. And I don't want to tell them what my page rate is because yeah. I'd hate to see them cry. Yeah. Uh, you know, what we, actually, what we actually make doing this. How long did the weekly run? How long did uh, Lulu 8 Ball run? Like 12, let me think. Wow. Oh possibly 14 years. Um, and I had always said that I would stop after 10 years because I think it might have been Matt Graney who said like a, a all weekly cartoon is usually only funny for like 10 years. Um, <laughs> but I kept it going for longer than that. And and I stopped when it dwindled to the point where it was only in like, I think one or two weeklies. The Baltimore City paper, which is where it started, had kind of like, been bought by the sun and became kind of a sad shell of itself. 
So I was basically, I, I was literally making 10 bucks a week off of it. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to resent doing this. Um, and so I pulled the plug kind of shortly before the Baltimore city paper gave it the ghost for real anyway. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a sad decision. Um, but you know, it's, it, it's just the whole alt weekly thing in general is, is a, is a sad state of affairs. Yeah. No, I remember when the new times died in Los Angeles and I was like, Oh, this is sort of the beginning of the end of something. Yeah. And, uh, and now the weekly is, you know, a quarter of the size that it used to be. I mean, yeah. I don't know if that's because they, some of the sex ads are gone from the back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny, you know, our magazine is supported by trafficking. Hooray. <laughs> uh, so that's nice. Um, but uh, sustain me for a while. Right. Yeah. No, no. Money off trafficking one way or the other. <laughs> too uptight about it. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I, I got, I got into an interesting discussion with some colleagues about, uh, I think we were talking about the season finale of Mad Men and, they're like, advertising's not art. Advertising can never be art. It's impossible for advertising to be art. And I was like, we are all of us selling Coca-Cola on one level or another. The question is how much good we are able to do as we sell Coca-Cola. That's yeah. all. <laughs> That's all. Everybody who makes a movie is selling Coca-Cola in a theater somewhere or selling it so that you can watch it on the couch. And again, your level of comfort is how much good can you do? As, yeah. you sell the, as you sell the Coca-Cola. And I think that's, you know, part of what we're, you know, what I wanted to talk about today is, you know, how do you, we all, it, it's the fine line of like how, how all art is political and everybody who says otherwise is literally paying no attention to reality. But, uh, and that's actually an argument that's come up a lot in comics. There's a, <clears throat> there's a kind of sad alt-right version of comic of the comic book world called comics gate that literally says, you know, comics got bad when then there were, when there were politics in them, there were and you want to show that, you know, everybody shows them the cover of captain America number one, where he's punching Hitler in the face a year before we entered the second world war going seems a little political punching a foreign leader in the face that we're not at war with. And, you know, I know Lalo, I think I saw somewhere you love the old, you know, the 1940s original comic strips and, you know, Superman in the first, long before he dealt with supervillains and whatever, it was slumlords and guys who beat their wives. That was mostly what Superman concentrated on for the first two years were capitalists and <laughs> abusers, you know, and then it morphed into another thing. Yeah. But, you know, the question, the, the tricky part is, and this works for, I think, all of us, it's how do you keep it funny? How do you keep it entertaining and still get out what you want to get out? Like, do you think about that? Do you struggle with it? I mean, for, for me, it's like, uh, I, I, I do varying degrees of, you know, hard hitting editorial cartoons, uh, which is my favorite thing to do. Um, and, but I also work in, you know, television animation. And so we're again, uh, selling Coke there too. Uh, and uh, although I had an editor that told me, that said we're, you know, we're selling the, reminded me not to uh, not to try to cuss or do anything racy in the daily strip. You know, we're we're selling uh, detergent and bras. You know, like that's <laughs> and if you look at the L.A. Times, that is so true. That is very true. Um, but uh, for me, you know, working in now also in uh, TV animation. Uh, I feel I'm bringing the same aesthetic as far as it's a revolutionary act to show a brown person in media in the U.S. And to have a brown person doing it, well, that's, you know, that that, that really blows people, some people's minds. And But it should be normal, you know. Uh, but uh, so uh, that's how I uh, justify selling Coca-Cola on that level of, uh, of uh, you know, well, that's, you know, that, that, that is how the, that is how the change is made. I mean, Coco, there's a, a, you know, a lot of Americans who that is their entire experience of the country of Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I, <laughs> that, that's I, it. That's all they know. Yeah. When that project 
landed on my lap and I had the opportunity to uh, risk being called a sellout for working with Disney, who, you know, I we remember all, that. Right. And, but I, I particularly attacked Disney for uh, trademarking the term Dia de los, de los Muertos. Uh, and so uh, I, I knew that not only would that project be, you know, an important one for the Latino community, uh, but also for Mexico and also for the people not familiar with, uh, you know, uh, other cultures other than the U.S. Uh, culture. And, you know, we saw 70 million people uh, this week uh, <laughs> uh, that are not familiar with too many cultures uh, voting for uh, Trump. So, um, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm happy that it, it, it could teach them, too. But for me, it's all about representation. You know, we've got to mm -hmm. uh, see ourselves. Sure. And Emily? But if he wants to make a movie about Central Connecticut 90s punk rock kids, I'll sell <laughs> that fuck out. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It's a that that that's a that is a perfectly you know we all we all look for our own. Uh, my favorite television show, probably of all time, is in one people don't remember very well called Crime Story, and I'm an Italian Jew from New Jersey. As much as I have the white skin and I can survive a routine traffic stop pretty easily, all over America, uh, Italians on television, Italian Americans are. Sexy idiots, usually, uh, 99.999% of the time, or criminals. Uh, Jews are David Schwimmer, or the kids from Seinfeld, who are a collection of anti-Semitic tropes uh, presented by Jews for the entertainment of wasps. Fantastic. I'm glad we all made a lot of money there. Uh, but crime, <laughs> crime Story had Italians and Jews in a heroic light. The Jewish character was a crusading district attorney. The Italians were mostly tough cops. And there were Italian gangsters and there were Jewish gangsters on the show. But I was like, look at Midnight Run, just as an example. Robert De Niro is the hero of that film. It is one of the few films in which he is Irish. And there's no reason for him to be Irish, except that Italians are bad people and the yeah. Irish are good people. <laughs> that is really the whole aesthetic being served there. So even representation is a granular subatomic thing, more so than just the broad strokes of it. I think a lot of people don't. I grew up writing, you know, the genre stuff I wrote as a kid, the heroes all had Anglo-Saxon names because you couldn't sell it. My father wrote 36 uh, private detective novels about a guy named Ed Noon. His name was Michelangelo Avalone. <laughs> Why was Ed Noon a Irish guy with blue eyes? <laughs> like, you know, because dad didn't think you could sell that. You know, Mickey Spillane, also not, you know, write, wrote Mike Hammer, everything, short Anglo-Saxon names. So, you know, you get older and you go, oh, you know what? The main character, this could actually have a vowel on the end of his name and that wouldn't be the end of the world. And maybe I could, maybe I could even get it sold with a guy with a vowel on the end of his name. Um, I mean, I have a vowel on the end of my name, but. <laughs> the accent isn't quite the same, I think, <laughs> on that. But how do you, how do you find blending? I know your work isn't as political I know as Lalo's, obviously. But uh, how do you but, find blending the political into your work, Emily? I mean, I think the through line with everything that I do is um, absurdity. I think the baseline where I start from is the absurdity of everyday life, of politics, of the government, of family life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think that the absurdity and the you know cruelty of the last four years especially has it has um i guess has made it feel even more urgent that i use to address it in one way or the other um and i mean i i do push back on people who say that like you know trump has been good for comedy i don't think he's been good for comedy you know i don't think you can go that consistently passed the outer edge of satire and be good for comedy. Mm -hmm. uh, not to mention the fact that like, there's like 
there's a point at which you're like, no, this is so fucking, sorry, can I swear on here? Like, Absolutely. this, yeah. this is Fuck so yeah. unbelievably bad that like, you know, this is legitimately dangerous and scary and you kind of have to recalibrate your internal thing of like, how do I get the distance from this to be able to make fun of it in a way that um, doesn't so much make it like, so that people don't have to look at it, but it gives them like the courage to be able to to look at it. But yeah, like I don't get any joy out of the fact that Donald Trump is ridiculous. Um, I would ten times rather have a sane president to make fun of. Oh and yeah, that that is one of the most noxious. I remember in 2016 when people were like think of all the great art that is going to come out of this. I was like. You know what? I would probably trade all of the great art about the Holocaust for having those six million people back. Me personally, you know, like I, it, given the given the given the opportunity, uh, and you know, there aren't that many good like Holocaust comedies. So, <laughs> no, not really, not really. There, but you know, one a, a case could be made for the producers in an abstract. <laughs> in a more abstract sense. I mean, Nixon was also great for comedy, unless you happen to be Vietnamese or Cambodian, in which case he was very not funny. Yeah. Uh, you know, saturation I mean, bombing, less funny. What, what I mean, what, what is interesting is, I mean, the, the the argument that this is good for comedy or good for art or anything is, is ridiculous, of course. Um, the one good thing that has come out of this dumpster fire of a you know, four years or however far back you want to go is that it has like accelerated change. Right. I mean, a lot of, a lot of very smart people got really fucking angry. Um, and, and they did something about this. Right. And so we did have kind of great art and people doing great things and people, you know, I, I mean the, the, while, while a lot of, great stuff incinerated during these four years, the conversation has jumped about 20 years. Right. Um, and so I don't know how to, I don't know how to weigh those two things. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if it evens out or not, but I know that we are having conversations now that we wouldn't be otherwise. And if, if there is a bright side to any of this, uh, I guess that's it. I mean, I, I, I work in Hollywood and I get paid mostly to, you talk about selling out. I mean, I, um, when I was uh, when I was growing up, uh, I, I grew up in the Sundance movement, right? And I saw Pulp Fiction, and it blew my fucking mind. And I said, I want to do that. And I raced out to L.A. and I went to the American Film Institute Conservatory, you know, where David Lynch went, and I got my snooty film education. But by the time I got spit out into the uh, into the film business, they stopped making those movies, right? <laughs> um, and 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 if I could be the asshole who 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 complains for getting paid to write you know big Hollywood movies, I got stuck writing these kind of big you know Hollywood blockbuster type things. I mean, I have uh, my my claim to fame, if there is one, is that I've written for uh, uh, the directors of seven of the nine Fast and the Furious movies. So um, <laughs> tons of tons of fun, and 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 give me a Fast and the Furious movie any day of the week. Uh, uh, I don't want to sound like the, the you know, the, that's Cindy asshole, but you know, it was not what I came out here to do. Um, and, 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 you know, over the years I would hit these things. I mean, you talk about representation in movies. I mean, because I, you know, whatever, I mean, I, I'm a white guy and, uh, you know, and, and, and I'm a white male in his forties. And so I don't want to, you know, talk from, uh, uh, any sort of place here, but I, 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 I was a dirtbag kid who grew up in a housing project in Detroit. Right. And, uh, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, you had white folks and you had black folks and that was a big part of the experience. Right. And, and, and that was what I knew coming into Hollywood. Um, uh, that was 50% of my life. And so if I was writing an action movie and I wanted, uh, an African-American lead, I couldn't have it. You know, my agents, my managers would say, well, you know, well, you could write that, but then there are two or three actors we can go to, you know, if you make them a white guy. Uh, uh, you know, well, you know, then there are 60 guys we can go to. So let's do this. And then, and then if you want to make your protagonist a woman, uh, you know, um, and, 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 and so I, I dealt with that, uh, you know, just, just from a writing standpoint for, you know, for 15 years right here in Hollywood and, 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 and the, you know, the amazing thing that seems to be happening now, um, and we still have a, a long way to go is that you know, there is now, um, people are actively on the hunt for 
uh, for films like those with an African American protagonist, with a Latino protagonist, with a uh, uh, with with a female protagonist. Um, uh, it is a it, it is now uh, a plus, you know, if you have representation in your project. Um, and and I think that's interesting. You know, it is. It, it, we, we are not across any sort of finish line, uh, but. It is progress, and and it is kind of wonderful to see. Well, no, I, I, I think, that, and I, I think that it's been, you know, that's something that that angered and confused me for so long is just the, the kind of um, contempt and and lack of imagination, you know, to think, well, you know, the, the paying public doesn't want to see anybody but like a white guy in these roles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, like, I even as a you know, middle-aged, middle-class white person, I like TV a lot more now that I just don't just see people like me in it, you know? Like, I mean, I might not be Insecure's demographic, but I think it's a 10 times better show than girls. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think I think that is, that is one, you know, demonstrable good that has come out over the past few years, you know? And the fact that the TV that my kid watches is, a million times more diverse than the TV that I watched as a kid. Um, you know, that makes me really happy, you know, because it's like the more, like the, the more, like the, the fewer white people she's exposed to, the less I think she's going to be an asshole when she grows up. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think, it, you know, Lalo made the great point about his opportunity coming in the aftermath of the riots, mm -hmm. that there was a, there was a reckoning. There was a big, ugly reckoning. Uh, and it scared some people, but it also, the, the thing you said, Emily, that I always think about is it is entirely, well, that's not true. There's the racism. There is the giant, enormous white supremacy that feeds so much of our society. But for a lot of writers, there is a, just a sheer lack of imagination. Mm -hmm. And I know this from my, like writing a script 20 years ago, you have, you introduce a character, doctor walks into a room without thinking the doctor's a 40 year old white man. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to stop and go, why, why would that, why is that interesting? Why is that better than any of the other thousands of things this character can be? A lot of the, I, I have no clue whether or not George Lucas in his heart of hearts is a racist. I don't know. Right. I don't know what his feelings are, but I think that when he wrote star Wars and the little scrubby traitors, are the Jawas and the violent tribesmen are the sand people. <laughs> like he only changed the vowel on Jawas to get it away from the grossest stereotype on earth and sand people. Woof, you know, and again, that's, but there's the racism and then there's an incredibly lazy writer going, this takes place in the desert. Who lives in the desert? Well, and, 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 and then and then also also said lazy writer has shackles on uh, you know uh, put on them by the Hollywood machine. You know, right. I mean, you can you, you can try and push against that, and until very recently, um, it was you know it, it was it was not you know it was it was a losing battle, and it was you know it was actually why I got into why I got into comics. Evelyn, you and I have, have had this conversation before, but um, you know, for about a dozen years, I got paid pretty handsomely to write big Hollywood movies. Uh, and, um, but it's like Hollywood, basically they make five movies these days. Um, uh, and that's starting to change a little bit, but they want you to write them a certain, a certain way. And I got, I got pretty good at writing those five different movies. They paid for my house, you know? Um, uh, but, um, but after about 12 years, I was like, I don't know if I can do this for another 12 years. Like I was miserable, you know, to a certain degree. And I had my dream job, you know, when I was a kid, I said, I want to make movies and I was getting paid to make movies. And, Every day in Hollywood, you know, a bus pulls up and, and you know, uh, a couple of hundred people get off of it and say, I want to make movies. And most of them end up back on a bus uh, a year or two later and, and they end up, you know, back home driving a tow truck or whatever. Uh, uh, but but but, I, you know, I, I was I was the guy who who got to do this and I was miserable. Um, and it was the beauty of comics at that time was that um, was that in comics, you could you could tell any sort of story right with any sort of protagonist. Um, and you could tell it in any sort of way, um, as long as it was good, that was kind of the only bar to clear. Right. I mean, uh, uh, you know, of course, like 
you know, you know, one of the, uh, your comic book is going to make a billion dollars uh, or, or whatever, because, you know, that, that's how these studios kind of measure success or not. Um, but you are going to find an audience, uh, uh, you know, for your uh, for your story as, as long as it's good. Um, and, and that was amazing. And so when I got into comics, I kind of took the gloves off. It was like, well, um, all of these things that I've been begging to do for 12 years, I'm doing them. I'm never going to tell a straightforward story. Uh, uh, I'm going to mess around with structure and experimental elements. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, the second issue of my first comic, it's like, uh, um, it is told from the point of view of a man who has been awake for seven days and is literally being driven mad. So you have no idea what's real and what isn't complete mind fuck. And, and, and it was, it was the, it was the most fun I ever had writing, you know? Um, and, and, and so all of those things were possible in comics and that was what was really interesting to me. And, and I guess what I would say is that, I mean, I don't know if film will ever get there, but, um, but we've, we've taken a step and a big step in that direction just recently. I mean, just recently. Um, and that's cool. I'm excited to see what's, you know, what's do, next. Do either of you guys ever get pushed back on your editorial stuff or on, uh, you know, like, has the New Yorker ever told you, Emily, nah, not this for reasons, for reasons beyond we don't get it or it's not funny or we don't like it for some other reasons. Has there ever been any political interference in your work? No. Um, I think, I mean, besides the, just like they're, uh, they fail to buy it. Um, right. The only, <laughs> the only the ultimate insult. I've ever got was Bob Mankoff told me to stop drawing people so fat. Um, <laughs> Fat shamed in your comics by Bob Mankoff. I mean, he's a skinny nice. fish, so. But um, but yeah, no, I not from like the editorial side or anything like that. And I I do I work for the uh, I do some work for the Nib as well, uh, which is a much more like political yeah. um, publication. And yeah, same. They've never been like, oh no, you you know don't. Like they've never given me any pushback in terms of like content or anything like that. I've, I've done stuff that people have been that like Twitter didn't like, but like my editors have never, you know, have never pre twittered me. Right. Twitter, <laughs> Twitter is a whole other, working whole a much other political discussion. <laughs> if, if Twitter doesn't like it, you're doing something right. I think yeah. that's a, that's a good rule. To, and Lalo, yeah. how about you? Did the weekly ever reject anything? Has the times rejected stuff? Uh, yeah, no, um, well, the, uh, the, no, the week, I barely had an editor at LA Weekly, I mean, really, uh, it was great, uh, so. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, it, it, we were cool, um, and, um, they, they wouldn't even ask, like, what does this mean in Spanish? They'd just trust me, you know. Uh, <laughs> and times, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't interact with times I, I interact with my editors at, at Andrews McNeil and sure. uh, they're like sometimes I feel like they don't even read the strip but uh, they they catch they're good at the grammar and typos and oh that's things. good yeah uh, and then uh, uh, but uh, yeah sure I get uh, lots of pushback from the public all the time uh, and there's uh, you know you may or may not know but uh, Latino journalists uh, if you have the Spanish surname, even if you're just reviewing tacos, you will get pounds of hate mail from very dedicated racists who's like their life mission is just to hound you to death. So I've always had those guys a a after me. Uh, so I I uh, I don't you know ever talk about my family. I don't people don't know where I live. Uh, I have. Uh, you know, I have stage name, pen name, uh, perform also. So uh, uh, I, I have, I have uh, lots of death threats and stupid, you know, 99% stupid shit, you know, but right. that 1%, you know, got to keep a step ahead of that, that asshole. Yes. I had my life threatened on Twitter yesterday by a guy in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and I was like, it's only an eight-hour drive. Good luck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good luck to you, fella. Drive around Hollywood, see if you can find me. Incredible. Yeah. Emily, I assume you also get the occasional death threat, uh, etc. I don't know that I've ever gotten death threats. Um, I I made K-pop stands at me, mad at me. And <laughs> That's dangerous. 
that is very dangerous. Like I genuinely didn't mean to. Um, I I had a daily um, for the cart. Sorry, I did the daily cartoon on the New Yorker site, and it was after you know they managed to like troll the um, you know buying all those tickets for like the Trump rally and then never showing right. up. You know, uh, you know, baller move on their part. So I did a cartoon of a couple saying like, hey, maybe, uh, you know, maybe the K-pop stands can get to work on a vaccine. I. It's a great joke. Compliment. They did not see it as a compliment. And there was like, for about two days, my mentions were just a disaster. Um, So, yeah. How did um, they. Did they. I think she means this as an insult, you guys. Um, Did they but, interpret that as they weren't doing enough to stop COVID? Like, I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to parse what the insult would have been. I, don't, I still am a little confused as to why <laughs> the way it did. Like, they were like, you know, we're more than just K-pop stands. I'm like, there's nothing to imply that you aren't. I don't understand why you're angry. Yeah. Uh, this may be a function of my age or race, but dude, what the fuck? Um, the, the very first dumb argument I got into on Twitter, I remembered it because it was so incredibly stupid. I retweeted someone's joke about uh, that guy, Dan, who writes the religious thrillers. Dan Brown, uh, yeah, I think so. Da Vinci Code. Someone made a joke about Dan Brown's next novel being The Pope's Sleep Number. So, right, you laughed. The three of you laughed. It's a good, it's a solid joke. Nice. It's a, it's a solid joke. I retweeted it, and some guy came back at me for hating Catholics. Oh, wow. And I was like, no, I hate Dan Brown. You've completely misunderstood the subtext of this joke is that those are terrible books about stupid concepts. And have no, whatever one feels about the Catholic Church, that does not enter into the universe of that joke. Yeah. Uh, unless it's unholy that he sleeps on a Serta. I don't know what the, you know, or whoever makes the sleep number bed. I can't even remember. Right very, very, very stringent rule. But, but it just, it just was such a great signpost of like, this is how batshit what you're going to get back from this world is yeah. a complete misunderstanding of everything on every level all the time. And you just have to, you know, uh, I only survive on there by managing my settings and seeing virtually nothing anyone says to me. That's right. the, uh, I can, I only see, I, it's funny, the trolls haven't quite figured out that you can set your tweets to only, you only see notifications from people who follow you. Mm-hmm. So I set that up and now I set that up a few years ago because I got the attention of Nazi Twitter, which was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I retweeted a thing a guy said about uh, a, f- a friend of mine in Germany said a thing. We have a saying in Germany, if uh, you have one Nazi at a dinner party with 12 people, you have 13 Nazis at a dinner party, uh, <laughs> which is harsh, but I think fair. If you didn't throw the guy out in the driveway, you are humoring a thing that sh- should not be humored. And I also made a joke once that was, if you say, I hate Nazis, and the person you're talking to says, Define Nazi. You are talking to a Nazi. <laughs> they really didn't like that. And even like a lot of the like far left, like political definitions are important. It's like, no, they're in the case of Nazi, dude, they're seriously not important. Like we all know what we're talking about. It's not a it's not a complicated political ethos. It's that really simple. Not gone well. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, but, uh, I, I, so I, that I, one I, I made remember. me have to like lock down my profile for a few days as the Nazis swarmed me a little bit. But I, I've, I've I've never pissed off, uh, you know, not really pissed anyone off with with a comic or or with a movie or anything. And and in fact, I just I, I print my you know I print an email address that I read uh, in the back of all my comics, so they they can reach me pretty uh, handily if they have uh, complaints. But um, so. I haven't done it for about a year, but for a while there, I had this, it was an Instagram account where I was writing uh, micro poetry, which sounds like completely bonkers. It was called Skeet Ulrich owes me $37. It was written from the point of view of someone who was trying to get his $37 back from Skeet Ulrich, but it was really just a bunch of kind of 
crazy micro poems that would fit in a single Instagram box, right? And um, a couple of thousand followers, like nothing too crazy. It was just something I did in my spare time mostly to kind of warm up. And, um, and you know, good response here, good response there. But at, at some point, uh, the poem of the day, it was one line. It said, old white men are stupid, uh, uh, all caps. And that set off like a fire. <laughs> I mean, it was like, it was like, I have never gotten more, old white men are stupid. I've never gotten more messages about, and, and mostly it was old white men. Uh, and I don't even know how they found it. Cause you know, cause it's like Avalone saying, it's not like these guys are following like a weird Instagram poetry it's account. It's like, stupid, man. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, 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 that's the thing is so, so I'm getting these like, you know, these long diatribe, uh, uh, fits from like from old white men with misspellings and and all I'm doing is I'm, I'm just reposting them being like old you know old white man proves premise of poem old white man proves premise of poem and it, it just pissed him off more pissed him off more and that's like the only like mini mushroom cloud I ever had based on writing old white men are stupid that was that was uh... <laughs> it is the the, the the thinnest of possible skins you know it's yes. it's uh it's amazing that you can have your unjustified spot at the top of the pyramid of human society and still be like, how dare this account on Instagram imply that I am not the smartest man in the world. It's I have a, a thing I do every uh, four years, a parody of the Loteria game, and I call it Voteria, and it's always the candidates, etc. You get it. And uh, the slogan is, it's like bingo, gringo, right? And uh, almost <laughs> four years, there's that one guy who says that is a racial slur against white men. And I'm like, dude. But this time, my friend that works at Nickelodeon lives in Malibu. She said, dude, you got to check out Malibu next door. There's a guy who's sending me hate letters at the L.A. Times about the, the whole bingo gringo thing. Every time it would come up, he would send a hate letter demanding that, you know, they pull the strip as a hate crime, you know, and I'm like, oh, my God. But he's posting on Malibu next door. like Right. <laughs> the most right. thing you could think of is posting on The true last refuge of a scoundrel. <laughs> yes, Malibu next door is the last refuge of a scoundrel. That is, but that's the, the number of people just in a giant rush to prove whatever your point originally was. It's just so fantastic. It's like I never mock people for spelling or grammatical errors on Twitter unless the spelling and grammatical errors are in a tweet about how stupid I am. <laughs> and then I'm like, you didn't want to just proofread the one where you called. You didn't want to not spell idiot wrong. Like, come on, man. <laughs> like, you could you can make this too easy. Why you know? you are so stupid, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 No cap. No capital letters. No punctuation. It it, it, yeah. it it is it is on Twitter, but it somehow looks like it is letters cut from a magazine article and yeah, you know, pasted haphazardly onto a piece of paper. Yeah. The the the, the, the disease of the thin skinned is. I I don't I don't know how we ever get past that. And as Lalo said earlier, so I think it's seventy one million incredibly thin skinned uh, people. Uh, <laughs> which is a, a depressing number, but we still apparently outnumber them by at least six, seven million. So there's, there's that. Uh, yeah. We didn't want to do a podcast the couple of weeks of the election. Cause I was just like, I don't want to, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to record something relatively happy and have it come out the day Trump is announced as the winner. If that happens. So let's just not, you know, Let's let's not do that. But I'm uh, I'm I'm glad we got here where we are today. I wanted to talk a little bit, Emily, about the the uh, clinic escort project. Yeah. If you can tell people about that and how it came to be and how you got involved and all that. Um. Sure. Yeah. It is a comic book. Um. That's like. Um. Basically, it's graphic depictions of uh, narratives of of people who have defended um, uh, abortion clinics. And I did it. I was the editor of it. I actually didn't contribute to it. I just um, edited it. Oh, that's it. right. Um, and yeah, so um, Martha and Kelly asked me asked me to to you know get the people together um, and make it happen. Um, and I you know reached out to everybody that um, I thought might be might be into doing it. Um, and people really came through. It was it was lovely. So 
Yeah, um, it, it is now a, a for reals comic book that can um, that can be bought, and that money um, helps support AS4 and what they do for abortion rights. Yes, AS4. Uh, I used to be on the board. Now my board um, emeritus or whatever uh, consulting member of the board or whatever, but uh, worth mentioning as4.org. It, uh, it's actually a lot of what we're talking about here. It concentrates on the cultural aspects of the war against right wing uh, brainwashing about abortion, about women's rights, about women's health. And that's the, I always think that's where culture, and maybe this is a good sum up as we reach the hour mark on this, culture is where I think the wars actually get won. I think the elections are a reflection of the culture. My favorite micro example of this is one of the most conservative television shows of all time was called 24. The main character, one of the two main characters on 24 was a tall, handsome, smart, black president. It preceded the, there were a hundred episodes that every conservative in America watched before <laughs> 2008. And I think on some level for some people, it planted an idea in their head of a thing that was possible and that they would be okay with that maybe they might not have been okay with from just Morgan Freeman and Deep Impact. Maybe they needed a hundred hours of Dennis Haysbert being smart and reasonable and heroic. And I think a lot of what we do, uh, <clears throat> subtly or with a sledgehammer, depending on our mood for the day, is to present that. And you know, you're, a lot of times you're going to be preaching to the converted, and that's fine. I have a thing coming out. The the Kickstarter ends today, actually called the Omega Mam, in which Elvira, the Mistress of the Dark, uh, goes into a coma during the early COVID period because she overdoses on hairspray. And she, when she wakes up, Los Angeles is overrun by orange-skinned zombies who have uh, gotten sick because they took uh, cleaning fluid. And that combined with COVID and made them into something out of Night of the Living Dead. It is the least subtle political cartoon <laughs> of all time. Uh, and she, she cures them, spoiler alert, by spraying them down with essentially Starbucks latte. Uh, that's turns out the, the where lot the latte sipping liberals are going to survive the zombie apocalypse because that's the cure. Again, it is the I'm using I'm literally using Rush Limbaugh's stereotype as a joke against Trump. And again, utterly unsubtle, but it'll be in people's hands. It'll be out there, and that's that's what I can do with my Elvira Mistress of the Dark comic books. But uh, anyway. We should wrap up. Thank you so much for coming on board. Uh, tell us where we can find your stuff and uh, follow your work. Lolly. Uh, I am at emilyflake.com, E-M-I-L-Y-F-L-A-K-E. Um, I'm on Twitter at emilyflake, and I'm on Instagram at eflakeagogo. Lala? I'm on the internet so much, I'm probably on Emily's Twitter. So. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, I'm all over, uh, everywhere, uh, and Instagram, Twitter, uh, just Google my name and, uh, gocomics.com, uh, has my, uh, comics and edit my La Cucaracha and editorial and my, uh, humor website looping along. It's, uh, pocho.com, P-O-C-H-O. And you can uh, catch me at one of those places. Try to catch me. Okay. And Ryland? Uh, well, uh, you want to tell people where to find you before I sign off on everything? Sure, or sure. Your, uh, I, David Avalone freelance.com has all of the buttons to all of the things. I like to keep it simple like that. Keep it simple, stupid. Uh, and I am Rylan Grant. I am on all, uh, forms of social media at Rylan Grant, R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T. I always, uh, always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents just kind of drunkenly uh, arranged some letters and saddled me with it. And so uh, nobody gets it. Uh, my books, uh, uh, Aberrant and Banjax, which happen to have a uh, political slant, uh, um, are available at fine comic shops everywhere and via Comixology and Amazon and all that. Um, my uh, my uh, crime drama, 
uh, the Peacekeepers ends tomorrow on uh, on Kickstarter, uh, bit.ly backslash the Peacekeepers. Um, uh, that is a small town uh, versus uh, big world uh, 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 sort of thing also um, uh, sort of pertains to this uh, conversation, I think. So check that out. I think it's a pretty damn good book. Um, if you are watching uh, this broadcast on one of our three uh, YouTube channels, make sure to smash that like button. Give us a subscribe, uh, tell a friend and all that. If you are listening on uh, iTunes or uh, Spotify or other fine purveyors of ear crack, um, again, subscribe. Leave us a five-star review. Grab your uh, friend's phone and subscribe them. Uh, we need, uh, you know, need every, uh, need every ear on this thing. Uh, thank you so much uh, uh, for joining us. Uh, we will be back next week with a, uh, another fine episode and another uh, gaggle of fine guests. Uh, remember, uh, old white men are very stupid. Um, <laughs> if, 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 if you have a problem with that, please you learn email. nothing else <laughs> from this episode. Uh, thanks, guys. Thanks, thank guys. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.